0: Psalm 5, for the choir director with the flutes, a Psalm of David. Listen to my words, Lord, consider my sighing, pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for I pray to you. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors the violent and treacherous people. But I enter your house. By the abundance of your faithful love, I bow down toward your temple, your holy temple, in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. For there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them, and may those who love your name boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Speak to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father God, with the sound not working or the microphone not working, you're still here. You're here with us in this room, with, the, with my family. You're there with the brothers and sisters in Christ from Bethany Baptist Church in their homes, in quarantine, on self, in self-distancing. Father, even though we're not together, you're with us. And for that, we praise you. We thank you, Father, for other friends and family who are tuning in or watching. We ask, God, that you would speak powerfully to us. That your words, the the eternal words of Psalm 5, your holy word, would be blessing us and changing us and transforming us by your spirit's power. Show us Jesus. Show us ourselves. Every word that comes from your mouth is for our lives. And Lord, we confess even as we dig into Psalm 5 that we are not persecuted as we ought. Perhaps because we're not as bold as we ought to be. So we pray that you would feed our souls still with his precious word from Psalm 5. Grow us in you. Give us faith and repentance, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Christians want to live courageously. You guys, if you're a Christian, for the two members here, you want to live courageously for Christ and for our neighbors. We don't want to be afraid of opposition. We don't want to be scared of persecution. We want to be... Faithful, even if that means suffering for Jesus, don't we? I was wearing yesterday the the shirt, which is the the noon in Arabic, which is the N for Nazarene that ISIS was painting in northern Iraq uh, before ISIS got big, uh, and they painted that on every Christian house, and telling every Christian in their house and their workplaces, you either convert, pay fines, or leave, and a hundred thousand uh, Christians were displaced according to one website, because they follow Jesus, because they identify with Jesus the Nazarene. More recently, March 26, 2020, uh, Persecution.com puts out this prayer request in Nepal. Let me read, it, re- read you the story. After seeking treatment at home and abroad for a long-standing illness, Ishika was restored to health when a church shared the gospel with her and prayed for her. Grateful to God for her healing, she continued to attend the church and placed her faith in Jesus Christ. Eventually, however, the neighbors began to notice the change in Ashika and they pressured her husband to make, uh, to make her stop following that foreign religion. Sadly, he responded to the pressure by drinking heavily. And last year, he left Ashika and told her that he would not be back until she returned to hinduism ashika and her three children have not heard from him in more than 6 months because she can no longer afford school fees her children have to have had to leave school pray that god will supply their needs and that ashika's husband will come to know christ i encourage you to be praying even silently now as we continue with the sermon This is not a surprise that Christians suffer opposition and persecution for following Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, 18-21, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his Master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. Second Timothy 3.12 says, Everyone or all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love other Christians as Christ loved you, and to love your neighbors as you love yourself, with Christ in the center, with the gospel as your mission and your charter, then you will be persecuted by those who reject Jesus. If you represent Jesus faithfully, those who oppose Jesus, those who are antagonistic towards Jesus will be antagonistic towards you. So where do we take our stress and our pain when persecution and opposition and difficulty comes? I mean does God even see the opposition? Does he even care? Does he see the injustice? We don't have to be fearful or shrink back in shame. We don't have to merely grit our teeth and push through the persecution. To kingdom opposition. No, like David in Psalm five, we can look to God. Let me briefly tell you. Let me briefly tell you the story of David from Psalm five, and then from there, um, let's let's meditate on the psalm. Let's get the main goal. But let me tell you the story first. Now we don't actually have a story for Psalm five, but if we take Psalm three, when David fled from his son Absalom, his son was trying to take the throne. If we we take that as a story, which it could be, I mean, we don't, I think there is no story, so it could apply to a lot of situations. But David's writing here, he's being persecuted by enemies. Uh, There are different times of persecution. I think it's okay for us to think of it, at least one way to frame Psalm 5 is to think of it in terms of him running from Absalom. So his son rebelled against him, his third oldest son. His son rebelled against him and persuaded all of the nation of Israel to follow him. And in following Absalom... They kicked, David had to flee from Jerusalem. He had to flee from the palace. David left his concubines there along with other people to take care of the palace. Absalom came, slept with his dad's concubines to become more of a, a, a repugnant um, annoyance to David and to re- give the resolve of, of the people that they're against David. And then they went to go attack David and kill him so that Absalom could now reign as the new king. David was the anointed king By God, Absalom was trying to usurp the throne. That's the story. And David prays in situations like that. Let's let that frame our thinking here. So here's the main goal of this passage. When you're facing kingdom opposition, if you're part of the kingdom of God, David is part of the kingdom of God. He's the king of God's kingdom in the Old Covenant there. When you're facing kingdom opposition, look to God. Simple, right? That's what Psalm 5 is teaching. When you're facing kingdom opposition, look to God. If you read the Psalms well, Psalm 1 and 2 frame your whole reading of the Psalms. It's to praise God as you wait for God's kingdom to come. It's to praise God by word, by focusing on the word, Psalm 1, meditating on the Torah, and by looking to the king, Messiah, Psalm 2, as you wait for the kingdom to come. That's kind of the the, the gist of, of the Psalms, to praise and lament Focusing on the word or the message and the Messiah, if you like, as you wait for the kingdom to come. And so here, when you're facing kingdom opposition, like David was facing kingdom opposition, what should you do? Look to God. How shall you look to God? Three steps here of looking to God well. Verses 1 through 3, go to God. Don't go to anyone else. Okay, If you're going to look to God, go to God. Step 2, on verse in verses 4 through 9, present your case to God. And then step 3... Call out for action or call for action from God, okay? So step one, go to God. When you go to God, step two, plead your case to God, verses four through nine, and then verses 10 through 12, um, make your request explicit, if you like. Call for action from God, all right? So let's go through these steps um, one at a time, and then when we're done, we'll be done with the sermon. So number one, verses one through three, go to God. Look at how David goes to God in verse 1. Listen to my words, Yahweh. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for I pray to you. Notice here in verses 1 and 2 that um, David goes to God first by identifying who God is. Who is God? Is he Zeus? Is he Jupiter? Is he one of the many gods of Hinduism? Is he Allah, the most high God who has no son? Who is God? Here, David identifies who God is. In verse 1, what does he say? Listen to my words. What's the name there? Yahweh. The covenant name of God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would, through them, give a blessing through their seed. He would give a blessing to a cursed world. A blessed people in a blessed place under God's blessed rule, even though they deserve the curse for their sins. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is Yahweh. Not only is that, he's the I am who I am. The great I am. The covenant God. The God who is above all. The God who is eternal. Unchangeable. And infinite. This is Yahweh. God himself. That's God's name. He also identifies God in verse 2. Look at it. Pay attention to the sound of my cry. What does he call God? My what? My what? My king. My king? What is David to to Israel? He's the what? He's the king. And yet to David, who's David's king? God is his king. And so interestingly, David is king over God's people, but Yahweh is David's king, and and David bows down to Yahweh as his king. People bow down to David as the Messiah king. David bows down to God as the ultimate, perfect, eternal king. And he not only calls him my king, he also calls him my what? My God. God is not God's name. That's, who, that's not um, God's name, but God, just like, it's, it's who he is in terms of um, his role, perhaps, you might like to say. So my name is not dad, but my kids call me dad, but that's my role to them. Well, God is God of the universe. He's the only God. So because he's the only God, you're referring to, to God all the time. You could say God, but that's not exactly his name. His personal name in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, is Yahweh. But he's God overall. And so David says, he's my God. Here, David's obeying the first commandment. What is the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. And that's true of David. David says, Yahweh, you are my God. I have no other gods before you. I have no other gods. You're my God. So he goes to God by identifying who God is. When you pray to God, remember who you're praying to. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who has revealed Himself in the face of Jesus Christ. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is God? According to our our church catechism, who is God? God is the Father, Father, loving and giving life to His Son. Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God is a personal community of love. That is the God you go to when you're facing opposition. So He identifies God, but He also... Um, He goes to God by identifying God, but he also goes to God by asking for attention. By asking for attention. Look at verse 1 again. Here's his prayer request. Listen to my words. Consider my sighing. So he asks God to listen to his words. He asks God to consider his sighing, his burden. Have you ever prayed where you're just sighing to God because you are so burdened you don't even know what to say? God, hear my words. But even when I don't know what to say, just... Just hear my sighing, hear my burden. Not only does he ask God to consider the sighing and the burden of his heart, look at verse two. He asks God to pay attention, not just to his words, but to the sound of his cry. God, you care. Can't you hear me crying? Does God pay attention to the sound of the cries of his people? You know, as parents, Francis and I, we have kids, as you guys know. And um, the more experience you grow as a parent, the more you learn how to assess cries. So you hear um, you hear a, and then you hear someone start crying. You know, as, kid, as parents, we just kind of listen like, is that a real cry? Are they really hurting or are they just kind of not really hurting? And so as a parent, you could kind of tell, you could pay attention to the sound of the cry and you could know when it's a serious, they're really hurt and they need comfort versus they're just whining and they're not really hurting. And so um, David is saying, God, you know my heart. I'm not just whining here. I'm really burdened. Pay attention to the sound of my cry. David is distressed. So here David brings his pain, his burden, and his opposition, the kingdom opposition against him. He brings it to God. I have a question for you. Who do you run to when you're facing overwhelming opposition? Who do you run to when you're burdened? When you can't even speak anymore and all you can do is sigh and cry. Who pays attention to the sounds of your cries? If you're not a Christian, I wonder who you run to. But that's not a question only for non-Christians. Even if you are a Christian, I wonder who you run to. Who do you run to? Even as Christians, sometimes we're guilty of not running to God. Now, I realize many of us need to put ourselves out there on the sacrificial path of gospel love so that we are overwhelmed by opposition. Some of us are not opposed by non-Christian opposition because we're not really putting ourselves out there for the cause of Christ. And so that might be a prerequisite to even applying some of this psalm. We might have to ask ourselves, do we, do we love our neighbors and our fellow Christians so well that we actually, are put, we actually sacrifice ourselves and our comfort to the point where we're overwhelmed and we have to cry out to God because we're going to face kingdom opposition outside the church, but even inside the church. We need to be putting ourselves out there following Christ, and then going to God with our burdens. So David goes to God by identifying God, by asking for attention, but also by by expecting a response. Look at verses two and three. He says, for I pray to you, and then verse three, in the morning, Yahweh, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. So David prays to God in the morning. He pleads his case. The ESV says he prepares a sacrifice. I think pleading the case is more of the idea here because he says in verse two, pay attention, or verse three, hear my voice in the morning. I plead my case to you. The word my case is not in the Hebrew. It's just I prepare to you or I, I plead to you. I give to you. I present to you, actually. So is he presenting an offering to him? Is he presenting his case to him? I think case is, is the right... Um, The right object here. David is presenting his case to the Lord. I think that's what the rest of the psalm bears out. So David pleads his case to the Lord. He doesn't merely ask God for things like a four-year-old. My four-year-old asks me for things. But my 11-year-old, she reasons with me. She doesn't just ask me for things. She gives me reasons why I should give her what she wants. David doesn't pray Like a four-year-old, it's okay four-year-olds to pray like a four-year-old, but David reasons with his God like an 11-year-old, and that's what we need to do with God. We ask God for help, but then we reason with God, we'll get to that in a second. And then lastly here, verse three, David watches expectantly. David waits. He watches. He expects an answer. When you pray, do you expect God to listen to you? And do you expect God to respond? Do you believe Jesus when he says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you? Do you believe Jesus' words? You may say that you believe it. I hope to believe it as well. We might say with our mouth that we believe that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers. David expects an answer. here. But our prayer lives, our prayer time this week will show whether we actually believe that God answers our prayers. As God's children, adopted by God through Jesus Christ, let us expect God to answer our prayers when we pray to him. The Lord is telling you this morning, here's good news, brothers and sisters, friends. The Lord is telling you this morning, cast your cares on me because I care about you. Bring your anxieties to me. Bring your worries to me. Bring your concerns to me because I am concerned for you. That's why God is addressing you this morning. Even if you're not a Christian and you're listening this morning, God is concerned for you. That's why he has you listening right now. Because he has something to tell you out of his love for you. But it's not all love. There is justice and righteousness, as we're going to get to in the second point. So again, the main goal is when facing kingdom opposition, look to God. And you do it by going to God in prayer. But secondly, if you're going to look to God, um, go to God, if you're going to look to God, look to God by presenting your case. This is what I was talking about. Presenting your case like an 11-year-old rather than like a 4-year-old. When you ask God for things, present your case to God. Look at verses 4 through 9. Now, I think verse 4 begins with the word what? What does it begin with? 4. So... I watch expectantly, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. So what is this? What is the logic here? David is answering a question, or um, why does David expect God to answer his prayer? Why does David expect now I'll tell you what David's prayer is. I'll spoil it a little bit here. Look at verse 10. Here's David's prayer request. What is he praying for, his enemies? That God would what? Punish, Punish them. Now, now let's go back to this. Why does David expect that God will answer his prayer to punish his enemies? Why does God expect it? Well, he tells us here. He tells us in verse 4 through 9. This is why David expects it. For I expect you to answer my prayer, God. I'm here in the morning. I'm pleading my case before you. Punish them. Deliver your people. I'm waiting. I'm expecting it. Why? Why can David expect it? Because Because of the case that he makes. So here, David makes the case in two two ways here. He he recalls God's holy wrath, verses four through six, and then he remembers God's Messiah, verses seven through nine. He recalls God's holy wrath in verses four through six, and then he remembers God's Messiah in verses seven through nine. And in that, he's making his case. So here's why David's enemies should be punished and David's people should be delivered. Why? But David presents his case by recalling God's holy wrath. Look at verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. So what does, he, let's recall God's holy wrath. What does God delight in? Or better yet, verse 4, what does God not delight in? He is not a God who delights in what? Wickedness. wickedness. God hates wickedness. He does not delight in wickedness. He's not happy about wickedness. God delights in righteousness, in holiness, in purity. God does not delight in wickedness. But carrying on in verse 4, what about God's dwelling and presence? Look at verse 4. Evil cannot what? Evil cannot what? Dwell with you. you. It can't live with you. God and evil cannot live together. Indeed, look at verse 5. The boastful cannot what? Stand. Stand in God's sight. God is set apart from the boastful. He cannot live with evil. He is separated from evil and from the boastful. So when Adam and Eve are in the garden and they're sneaking around thinking that God's not seeing and they talk to a serpent, well, they weren't sneaking around, but they talk to a serpent, they get tricked and then they eat the fruit and then they hide. When God comes to confront them, after he's done confronting him, what does he do? Does he just let them live with him in the garden of Eden? No, he exiles them. He kicks them out. He kicks them out of the garden And then he closes the gate and he shuts the gate and he puts an angel there and a whirling fiery sword so that they could never get back in because the holy God cannot live with unholy people. The boastful cannot stand in his sight. Evil cannot dwell with him in heaven above or in the garden of Eden or in the new earth to come or even in the temple. That's why there are so many restrictions and barriers. Priests have to wash themselves and cleanse themselves and change. And they can only go to the holy place. And then the high priest, he can go to the holy of of holies, the most holy place, only once a year. After all kinds of cleansing. With blood. Because God cannot dwell with evil. The boastful cannot stand in his sight. God does not delight in wickedness. And then in verse 5 and 6, we see God's hatred. What does God hate? What does God abhor? Verse five: You hate what? You hate, you hate who? All what? Evil doers. Evil doers. Verse six. The end of verse six: The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. Have you ever heard the phrase "God hates the sin, but loves the sinner"? Is that true or false? Answer at home. Is that true or false? God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Say it out loud at home. What do you guys think? False. 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 Some of you say false. Are they answering online? No. no. All right. It's true. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. But it's not completely true. It's not the whole truth. It's just part of the truth. Yes, God loves the sinner, but according to this verse, God also what? Hates the sinner. God hates you can't separate the sin from the sinner God hates the sin and hates the sinner he also loves the sinner that's why he sends a son that's why we have the gospel that's why he's addressing you right now we're sinners here saved sinners some of you are not Christian not saved sinners according to Christianity but God loves you enough to cause you to have the sun rise on you today he loves you enough to have you hear the gospel message this morning the word of God praise God for that God does love but he also hates he hates evildoers. He abhors violent people. He abhors treacherous people. This is not unique to Psalm 5. You might go, well, let's just skip over Psalm 5 as we read the Psalms. Well, if you skip over Psalm 5, you'll get to Psalm 11. And Psalm 11, verse 5 says, The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Well, let's skip over Psalm 11 as well. You might skip over Psalm 11, but then you get to Psalm 106, verse 40, where it says, therefore the Lord's anger burned against his people and he abhorred his own inheritance. Now God is abhorring and hating his own inheritance, Israel, according to Psalm 106, when he was judging them. And David follows suit in Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22. Lord, don't I, David, hate those who hate you? and detest those who rebel against you, I hate them with an extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. God's hatred and anger towards sin and sinners is a righteous response toward what attacks what God loves. In a way, in, in the way that you hate cancer, in the way that you hate the COVID-19 virus, in a way that you hate death or sexual abuse, or things that harm those we love, or people that harm those we love, with a righteous hatred, so God hates sin. God hates sin. But it also says that God hates sinners. And David, like I said in in Psalm 139, David follows suit. Now, we are to imitate God and even David in this while also realizing that God doesn't just hate sinners. He also loves them. God loves them too, and so should we. God hates them. And in a sense, so should we. But we are very, we're able to sin. God is not able to sin. So God will never hate them with an unrighteous hatred. Just like God is never angry with a sinful anger. God is never hateful with an unholy, evil, wicked, arbitrary, capricious, capricious hatred. God's hatred is always righteous. It's always perfect. It's always perfectly proportionate and fair and according to the person and the situation. We are not like God. We are not perfectly God-centered. We are not sinless yet. And so we need to be centering our our hearts on God so that we love and express his holiness, his love, and his righteousness in all the ways that God calls us to, given our unique opportunities and responsibilities. So we try to be angry. We actually have to be angry with sinful anger. Even here, we have to exercise holy hatred with, with holiness, but we have to be very careful because we can sin very easily. And so, though the main message of Christianity is not hate sinners and hate sin, that is in the Bible. We have to be very, very careful with it, but we we can't skirt around these verses because they're in the Bible, and God, God means them to feed our souls with a holy love for God and a holy love for people, which includes also a holy hatred for sin, and in the end, a holy hatred for sinners and I'm going to say in the end because that means in final judgment, especially. And we'll get to that when we get to verse 10. So don't just cut it out here. Listen to the rest of my sermon or else you might take me more out of context. All right. So you see, God, you, you see God's um, delight. You see God's dwelling and presence. You see God's hatred. And then look at verse 6. You see God's decisive action in verse 6, the first part of verse 6. You destroy those who tell lies. God destroys those who tell lies. It says in Revelation 21.8 that liars, my grandma would always say, liars go to hell. Don't lie. Liars go to hell. And that's actually biblical. Revelation 21.8 talks about um, how the cowards, the sexually immoral, the the detestable, sorcerers, liars, those who tell lies, God will throw them in the lake of fire for all eternity. God is decisive. He destroys liars those who tell lies. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know that God is not unin- God is not uninvolved in your life. Just because you might not sense him, God is not indifferent. God cares. He does pay attention to you and everyone. And God is not indifferent to what you do in this world. He cares about righteousness, he cares about sin, he cares about justice, he cares about your sin. So the first thing David does to to make his case is to remind God that um, God is holy in his wrath. But also, the second part of David's case in verses 7-9 through is that he remembers God's Messiah. And he expects God to answer him in his prayer for judgment and deliverance because of God's Messiah. Look at verse 7. So here's the evil people, the liars, the evildoers. But then David says in verse 7, But I... But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. So here, David is contrasting the wicked with himself. Now, if you know the story of Absalom and his rebellion, it's caused because David was not fully righteous. David actually sinned. He committed adultery and murder. He deserves deserves judgment as well. But God had forgiven him. And so David... David's not acting like he's not sinful, but he is contrasting the way he even lives with God in response to his sins versus the wicked. And how does David respond in verse 7? He has access to God. He says, I enter your house. David enters the dwelling and sight and presence of God. How? By the abundance of God's what? Faithful Faithful love. Faithful love. So this is God's covenant love, his steadfast love, the ESV says. Or to you, Sally Lloyd-Jones again from the Jesus Storybook Bible, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. The love that God has for his people tied to his promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's covenant love. God doesn't merely love. God is love. And God's love for his covenant people is, an et- is eternal And God's covenant love, God is love, Father, Son, and Spirit loving each other. God is love. And in this love for God, the Father's glory in his Son by the power of his Spirit, he has an eternal love for his people who would be united to Christ forever. And in this eternal love, God enacts this unbreakable covenant commitment centered on Jesus Christ. David looks forward to Jesus Christ here. Well, I mean, God's covenant love looks forward to Jesus Christ. But here David says, I enter your house. I enter God's presence because of God's covenant love. And then David also makes a difference. He's different from the wicked because he prays for righteous leading. Look at verses eight and nine. Lord, lead me. I'm sorry, in verse seven, there's also the I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. So David is praying towards the tabernacle at the time. Verse eight, Lord, lead me. Yahweh, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. So here David is praying for a righteous leadership. David knows he can sin. He's sinned in the past. He's gonna sin in the future. But here he's saying while he's under the pressure of the enemies, Lord, lead me in righteousness because my adversaries are tempting me or pressuring me toward unrighteousness. Maybe David's tempted to have an unrighteous response towards the pressure and opposition of those who oppose him, towards Absalom. I mean, if your son rebels against you and tries to take your kingdom and all of your people, Israel, turns against you, you might be sinfully, re- sinfully reactive, right? Bitter, resentful, not for God's glory, but for your own personal gain, and you, you'll be self-centered in your response. David is certainly um, fallible and able to fall into sin. So he says, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. If you're stuck in your sin, if you feel like you're stubborn in your heart towards sin right now, or if you're like if you're stumbling in your sin, God is telling you to pray to him. Pray pray for God to lead you in righteousness. The way David prays here. God, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. Pray to God. Pray that God would lead you in righteousness. Start your turn. Start your turn out of your stubbornness and your being stuck in your sin. Start your turn back to God with a humble and true asking of God to lead you and to change you. Do you ever feel like you can't change? Like you're stuck in your sin? And like, it's just too strong and it's too much. It is too strong for us. But the first thing we can do, and maybe the most important baby step we can do, is ask God for help. God, lead me. God, change me. God, the way in front of me seems so crooked and hard, I don't even know how to move forward. Make the way straight for me. Help me, Lord. Change me. Now, he prays for a straight path for himself. Why? Why does he pray for this righteous straight path? Verse nine, why? Why does, he, why does he have to pray for a straight path when his adversaries are tempting him the other way? For there is nothing reliable in what they say. There's nothing true in what they say. Destruction is within them. I can't go to them because I can't trust what they say. Now, it says destruction is within them. Their throat is a, is an, is a what? Is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Here's what the enemies do. They flatter. They speak lies. They say things to butter you up. But like the mouth is an open grave. So if you're thinking about a six, you know, I don't know, um, all their burials. Well, actually, they had more like buildings for their burials. But for us, it'd be like a grave that's, you know, dug and then six feet deep. Whether it's a, a building with with, a, with um, a door that they cover or whether it's a grave. The opening of the, of the grave is their mouth. So the top of the ground that's cut six feet deep, that's the mouth. And what's down inside that grave? Death. Death. So these people, their mouth is a grave. What's coming out of their mouths? Death. And and so they flatter with their tongues, but inside them is death. Or to go back to verse 9, destruction is within them. They walk around spewing death with what they say. And so David says, I can't rely on them, God. I need you to lead me. Their path is wicked and sinful and unreliable, and it leads to death. Now, David is not saying he's righteous on his own accord. You have to read the Psalms with the other Psalms. We're reading Psalm 5 with Psalm 3 in the background with Absalom. If you read Psalm 6, don't turn there now, but we'll we'll do Psalm 6 in two weeks. David is repentant and desperate. Lord willing, we'll do it in two weeks. David is repenting for his sin there even as he's praying against his enemies. In Psalm 7, David says, God, deliver me, not because of me, but because of you. I need your grace. I need you to deliver me. So David is not putting himself above the wicked here. Christians are sinners. Old Covenant saints are sinners. And David is going to make his case now for his imprecatory. David. So David makes his case. God, I'm about to ask that you punish them. Hear my prayer. I'm pleading with you. Deliver my people and judge these people. Why? Because you're holy and you're righteous. And because I am your Messiah. I am a faithful follower of you that leans on you, and looks to your temple, and asks for your help. They're not asking for your help. They're boastful. Church member, Christian. What do we learn from this? If you're going to plead your case with God, you need to know who God is. You need to know his attributes. So one of our catechism questions says, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, triune, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In what? In His being, wisdom, wisdom power. power, holiness, justice. justice, goodness, and truth. truth. That's, who, that's what God is. God is, all of that is what God is. Those are not parts of God. That's all, God is all that. And all of that is what God is. And so get to know God, his character, his word, so that when you pray to God, you can reason with God. Church family, this is why we need Christians. Bethany Baptist Church, we need to teach all of the Bible and all that God says he is. This is why I can't skip over Psalm 5 and and the hatred towards sinners. We have to teach the Bible so we can know who God is so that we can pray thoughtfully. Children, listen up, children. God hates sin. God abhors sin. He's angry with sin. God hates sin infinitely. And God will destroy sinners who do not come to him in repentance and faith. Trust in Jesus because God's love is even more overwhelming than God's anger. Trust in God's love and run to God. Don't hide from God. Don't hide from your parents if you have godly parents. But run to God and to your parents so that you can find God's love. So when facing kingdom opposition, look to God by going to God in prayer, by presenting your case to God, and lastly, by calling out for action, verses 10 through 12, by calling out for action. All right, so here in verses 10 through 12, David has two prayer requests. Verse 10 is his first prayer request. And then uh, verse 11 is the flip side of the prayer request. So in verse 10, he calls for justice. And in verse 11, he calls for grace. He calls for justice and he calls for grace or he calls for judgment and salvation, if you like. In verse 10, he says, punish them, God, or let them bear their guilt is maybe a more literal translation. Punish them. For their guilt. And then it says here, let them fall by their own schemes, drive them out because of their many crimes. So notice here, David's call for justice is punish them for their guilt, let them fall and drive them out. Now, when God says punish, or when David says punish them, you're a New Covenant Christian, you're you're reading the whole Bible, you know the Gospel, you know Revelation. So when you hear punish them, what are you thinking? Punish them where? In hell, right? In the lake of fire for all eternity. And that's true in the Bible, but David is not primarily thinking that. That's a good application of, of Psalm 5, but don't go there first. David is saying, Absalom, Ahithophel, my advisor, all these traitors have betrayed me. God, punish them. Stop them from rebelling against me. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out. May they be defeated. And may my kingdom be restored. Now we know that 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 punishment there, God judging them the way he might judge the Philistines, that means let them lose the battle, maybe even die in the battle. But if you take that old covenant reality and you, you press that punishment for sin all the way up biblical theology, it has to go ultimately to eternal damnation. But David is praying for their punishment, a call for justice. They have betrayed me, and therefore they have betrayed the Messiah, so God punished them. Let them fall by their own schemes. And then David gives two more reasons why, why he's praying for this, right? Um, because of their many crimes, and because they rebel against you. It's not even, David's not, it's not just about me, and I am your Messiah. And in Psalm 2, so, by the way, you have to read the Psalms in light of Psalm 1 and 2, and in Psalm 2... When people rebel against God, they rebel against his Messiah. When they rebel against his Messiah, they rebel against God. God and his Messiah are linked together in Psalm 2. God and his king are linked together. And so David is saying, yeah, they're my adversaries, but God ultimately in verse 10, they rebel against you. And so punish them. Drive them out. Let them fall. Application? Pray for justice like the psalmist's. Pray for God to come and judge like the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6, through 9-11. through 11. Listen to this prayer of the martyrs who are waiting for Jesus to come again. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice. Here's a prayer. Lord, the one who is holy and true. The holiness of God. The one who is holy and true. How long until you judge those who... Who live on the earth. And avenge our blood. How long until you avenge our blood Lord. Verse 11 says. So they were each given a white robe. And they were told to rest a little while longer. Until the number would be completed of their fellow servants. And of their brothers and sisters. Who were going to be killed. Just as they had been for the kingdom. But notice this prayer is a prayer for the church. For Christians. Lord the one who's holy and true, how long until those who li- until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge the blood of those who've died for Christ? That should be our prayer. Pray, Lord, Lord, come. Come and judge. Come and end this. Come and avenge the injustices against your people because that's ultimately an attack on you. At the same time, when you pray for judgment... We are evangelists, right? We have a great commission to love our neighbors and the nations with the gospel to disciple them. So, at the same time, pray for their salvation. Pray for the salvation of persecutors and enemies and those who are hostile to the gospel. Pray for them that they would turn from Jesus to uh, turn from sin, sorry, to Jesus the way the apostle Paul did. Remember Saul, Paul of Tarsus. He hated the church out of his love for God. He wanted to kill Christians and jail them and persecute them and shut them up from saying that Jesus is the Messiah. He wanted them to shut up. And then Jesus confronted him and this persecutor. You might say, God, judge Saul. Christians might have prayed prayers like this, right? And then God turned Saul. So pray for their salvation. So pray the imprecatory Psalms. Here's how you pray for punishment. Pray for their punishment with an if. God, save them. But if they will not repent and trust in you, punish them. Let your justice stand for all eternity. So there's a call for justice, but then there's a call for grace for God's people in verses 11 and 12. Look at verses 11 and 12. David prays for joy. He prays for shelter. And he prays for boasting. Look at verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for what? What? For joy forever. He's praying for rejoicing. He's praying for joy. Now notice what he calls those who are on his side. Let all those who what? Who are these people? What characterizes those on David's side? All who take what? What do these people do? They what? They take refuge in who? In God. So the issue is not me versus, my, me and my friends versus other people. It's those who take refuge in Yahweh, in God, and those who don't. Let all, And so obviously Absalom and Ahithophel and all those who oppose David—they're not taking refuge in God because if they were, they wouldn't oppose David. So, um, by the, so, what does what does this mean for for BBC? BBC, we have to take refuge in the Lord. We have to encourage each other to take refuge in the Lord to go back to God. Let's try to we try to comfort each other, right, as church family, but let's not try to comfort each other apart from taking refuge in God. Let's push each other back to God. We want to bear each other's burdens, but let's not pretend to be God. Let's point them back to God. And he asked God here to grant them rejoicing forever. Let them shout for joy forever. This is an eternal and eschatological prayer request and hope. God, I don't want you just to bless the church family now. I don't want you to just bless the Christians now. I want you to bless them forever. Let them shout for joy, not just today during the COVID-19 crisis, but for all eternity. May they shout for joy forever. And I love the idea of shouting for joy because you can be like, yay, Jesus. Yay, God. Yay, kingdom. But when you're shouting for joy, it's this overwhelming emotion and affection for God and his glory and an overwhelming of God's grace and his majesty and his righteousness that you can't help but shout. You can't help but clap. You can't help but jump and praise God. And so this it's this, It's this um, eruption of joy. And the prayer is that they would shout for joy like this, not for a moment, but forever. Imagine that, an eruption of joy, being on a spiritual high that never ends. That's the prayer. So he prays for joy. He also prays for shelter in verse 11. May you shelter them. May you shelter them. That's a prayer for protection. Certainly, current protection for David, but even eternal protection, as we take this in light of the whole Bible. So, Revelation seven. Listen to these this, these uh, sweet words from Revelation seven, fifteen through seventeen. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. Here's a shelter. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to the springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God, shelter your people. Shelter those who take refuge in you. And then the last prayer request here in verse 11 is for boasting. Let those who love your name boast about you. That's when you're so proud of God, you're so um, you're so encouraged by God, you're so delighted in God that you can't help but brag to other people about God. That's a great prayer request that we would boast about. How good, how good is God during the COVID-19 crisis? How good is God in sickness? How good is God in death? How good is God in grieving? How good is God when you sin? How good is God with your church? How good is God in your, your relationships with your neighbors? How good is God to give you a passion for the nations and for missions? How good is God in your life? Is he overwhelmingly good that you just can't help but boast about him? One application for our church family is when we gather together on Sunday nights, even on a Zoom call, that you're willing to boast about him. That you have a lot of reasons why God is good. And you want to share more. You just don't want to hug up all the time. But you want to boast about God. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy person should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am Yahweh. Showing faithful love justice and righteousness on the earth for I delight in these things thus says the lord or galatians 6:14 but as for me I will never boast about anything except the cross of our lord jesus christ the world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world I will only boast in god I'll only boast in christ So brothers and sisters, pray for grace, pray for joy, pray for shelter, pray for boasting, both now and forever. Pray for it, pray this for all of God's people, even God's future people who are persecutors right now. Pray for all of God's people, past, present, and future, that they will be saved, or for the future people, that that they'll be saved before the end and God would spread his gospel. So why should God answer this prayer of deliverance for sinners look at verse 12 someone's talking too much back there read please thank you community of grace why should god answer this prayer why should we have confidence that god wants to give you and us joy and shelter and boasting and blessing why look at verse 12 For you, Lord, Yahweh, what does he do? You bless the righteous righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. Why can God bless sinners? Why can God give joy and shelter and, and boasting to sinners who deserve his punishment? Because God blesses the righteous one. This blessing is like the blessing at the end of chapter of Psalm 4, verse 6, that God's the light of his face would shine on this person forever. Um, God, The Lord bless you and protect you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. This is a blessing given to the righteous one. This is the Abrahamic blessing to the cursed world through the righteous one. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through the seed of Abraham, through the righteous one. And who is the righteous one? Is it David, ultimately? No, David, David's problem here is because of his sin. He's going to ask for forgiveness in Psalm 6. David is not the ultimate righteous one. Who is the ultimate righteous one? Jesus, the Messiah. Now, we have delighted in sin, have we not? I mean, do, can we really expect joy and boasting and shelter now and forever? We have delighted in sin, we have told lies, we have been boastful, we have strayed from the paths of righteousness, we have relied on the unreliable words of the wicked, just like David has. We haven't sought refuge in God, but oftentimes we have hidden from God. We've sought refuge from God in hiding our sin, just like the wicked. We deserve to be hated by God, to be destroyed by God, to be punished by God, to be driven out by God. We deserve to fall by our own schemes because of our many sins and our crimes against God. We don't live the righteous life, but there is someone who has. Jesus never delighted in sin. Jesus never told a lie. He always told the truth. Jesus never strayed from the path of righteousness. But Jesus was cursed in our place for us. He was punished by God for our guilt. He was destroyed on the cross, He was driven out of the city gate to hang on the cross as a criminal. As a criminal with two criminals on his side. He was driven out as a criminal. He was cursed for us by hanging on a tree. But verse 11 says the righteous one is blessed. But Jesus is the righteous one and he was cursed. How can Jesus be blessed and how can we be blessed in Jesus if Jesus was actually cursed? How can Jesus be the blessed one? Because through him dying, through his life, he was righteous. Through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, he obeyed God. He completed righteousness. So it's not just that Jesus was righteous in his life and death. More than that, here's how this, this is how righteous the righteous one is. Not just that he lived a righteous life. He's so righteous, he's so amazingly righteous, that... In his life and death, he actually demonstrated and publicly vindicated the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't only accomplish righteousness in his own life. He accomplished justifying, if you like, or vindicating, publicly clearing the righteousness of God himself. That's what Romans 3, 25 and 26 says. God passed over sins. Is God righteous to let David go to heaven? He murdered people. He, he, he sexually assaulted and, and overwhelmed somebody. David was a sinner. Is, is God right to let you go to heaven to be with him forever? Is God right to let you be blessed with all the sins you've ever committed? Is that right? No, that's not right, that God would not punish you in your sin. That's not right. But the righteous one, by dying in your place for your sins, he clears God's righteousness. God was always righteous, but, but we didn't know how he would be righteous. How can he let David go on? Jesus' righteousness is so righteous that it publicly vindicates God's righteousness for forgiving wicked, evil sinners, unrighteous, ungodly people like you and like me. That's the righteousness of Christ. And that's why we can be blessed. Jesus was blessed by obeying God perfectly and by vindicating the righteousness of God on the cross. And now everyone who's united to Christ on the cross, we now get to be counted righteous because God does punish our sins. He doesn't let our sins go, but he punishes our sins on the cross with Christ. We were there with Christ in his death and we are with him in his resurrection. We are united to him by faith forever and ever. So the song says, some of you know the song, The Glory of the Cross. What righteousness was there revealed that sets the guilty free, that justifies ungodly men and calls the filthy clean, a righteousness that proves to all that justice has been met and holy wrath is satisfied through one atoning death. Oh, the glory of the cross, that you would give your son for us, I gladly count my life as lost that I might come to know the glory of the cross. If you're not a Christian, let me make it really clear for you. God wants to give you joy and shelter and blessing. He wants to give you boasting forever in Him. He wants to forgive you of your sin and make you part of His family. Sinful though we all are, but you need to understand Jesus and trust in Jesus. So here's the gospel message. God made you, he's holy, he's righteous. He made you to enjoy him forever. But you and I have rebelled against God. We have sinned against God. And so we deserve to be damned and condemned and punished and driven out and destroyed for our sins in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. But God sent his son Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die on the cross for you and for me So that if you repent from your sins and trust in that Jesus who is righteous and who died and who rose, if you trust in that Jesus, you will be forgiven of your sins. So turn from your sins. Repent from your sins. Repent from your righteousness and your goodness and trust in Jesus alone. And God will save you. God will count you righteous and forgive you and begin to transform you forever by the power of his Holy Spirit. Trust in Jesus. Repent from your sins. Jesus is Lord. So what's the main goal when facing kingdom opposition? Look to God. By going to God in prayer, by pleading your case, and by asking God to act for his great name. If I could just whittle it down to one thing you need to do, here's the one thing you need to do. You need to cry out to God for final and perfect justice for God's enemies and for final perfect salvation for God's people. Or in other words, You need to pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Pray that. God, punish those who will reject you forever. God, save those and shelter them and give them joy and boasting forever for those who know you. Lord Jesus, come. Come now and bring final justice and judgment and final salvation and joy. Pray that prayer today. And this week, pray for God's justice and forgiveness. If you don't pray this final judgment and justice and salvation prayer, you will not engage the loss boldly because you won't be mindful of the final judgment. Your life will be filled more and more by earthly and worldly values because you're not keeping in mind the final judgment and the final salvation. And God will be marginalized and squeezed out of your life where God's Hatred and judgment and final judgment and salvation seems weird to you. But if you pray to God and call for him to bring final judgment and final salvation, you will set your eyes on things above and not things of this earth. You will live for eternity and not just for the present moment. You will engage your neighbors and your church family with God as a driving passion of your life. And you'll take risks for the kingdom. Even risking opposition and persecution. So let's pray and ask God for help. And I will close even here by praying the prayer from Revelation 6, 9 through 11, one more time. Let's pray. Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge the blood of your saints? How long until you come to restore the fullness of your kingdom? And complete your plan. How long until your name is finally and fully honored as holy. And that your kingdom fully comes and your will is fully done. Here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord come. Bring final judgment. Bring final salvation. Come quickly. Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus. Please come.